Shut up and sit down. You guys missed the face that Chasey made, as if both in shock and as if she wanted to throw up. <laughs> Welcome to Pop Crap, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. I'm sitting here today with Caroline and Chasey, giving me faces out of the corner of my eye. Do you guys want to introduce each other? Uh, Caroline, why don't you start? Sure. Um, I'm Caroline. I am a fellow screenwriter. Wait, actually, I take that back. Why don't you two introduce each other? So Caroline, oh. introduce Chasey, and Chasey, oh introduce God. Caroline. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, this is Chasey, fellow screenwriter, still the same thing, um, and as she describes, a known movie hater. <laughs> um, yeah, and this is Caroline, uh, fellow screenwriter um, and Dune lover, I guess. Yeah, not as much as Carl, but I would say definitely a fan. Well, then let's just jump right in. What did you guys think of the movie? What were your uh, broadest thoughts on Dune? It was okay. <laughs> I liked <It's> it. Hard. <laughs> no, um, I, I liked it. I, I, As I'm sure we'll get into later, I definitely um, had a rocky start with the film. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was good and well-directed. But I do think I have an ultimate problem uh, regarding seeing Timothy Chalamet on my TV screen. <laughs> I liked it. I enjoyed it. I read the book. Um, it was like a quarantine project, actually, of mine to read the book. <laughs> it took me a long time. And I was like, it's been on my shelf for ages. I should read it. But ultimately, I liked it. Um, I thought the beginning was like really hard to get through. Versus the beginning of the movie, I think, was awesome. I was a big fan of it until over halfway through and then I think the ending kind of lost me but I love big sci-fi so it was such a fun experience and I knew I wanted to see it in theaters and I think after hearing everyone talk about it and seeing it kind of late I was ready to I had my expectations super tempered but then when I saw it I really enjoyed myself so I was happy yeah I think seeing it in theaters was definitely something that I contributed to me enjoying it a little bit more than I would have if I just watched it at home at HBO Max. But uh, I bet the first, like, 50 pages of the book is, like, the four, first four minutes of the movie. Not even. Really? Not even. No, it's actually, it's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't, the first 50 pages of the book are, like, the, like, second, I don't know, 30 minutes. Uh, it's, like, the, after, like, the 30-minute mark. You, like, arrived right when the book started, which, let's just transition into that. (laughs) Why don't you opine about your experience with the opening (laughs) of Dune? Well, I went to the wrong theater, um, and that caused me to hop into the movie about 25 minutes in, um, after crawling over about five people to get to my seat. And then, once I landed into my seat... And we were watching the part where he talks to, forgive me, I don't know the names of anything. The Reverend Mother. The Reverend Mother, yes. Uh, Caroline gave me a little whispered recap of what had happened in the first 25 minutes of the film, because I haven't read the book. Um, And all I got from that recap was that there is spice. And people (laughs) want it. And you know what? That's pretty important, you know? You know what? I think that's like the good the only good piece of info that I really uh, needed to know going into the movie. It's so funny. I was watching. I was waiting for you, you know, and, and sitting in the theater and I was watching and I was like, okay, how do I whisper, encapsulate? The- <laughs> 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 it's like waiting for her to get there. I was like, okay, so basically 
it's this and this. It's like these two houses and then there's uh, an empire and they all want spice. And then there's also the Fremen, and they are oppressed. Like I was like, all of these. Yes, it, I this is you this that. is the this is the the faction basically, or like all the different components. I think that are core. Which I was gonna say after having read the book, I was actually it clarified. There's a lot that was clarified in the movie in terms of the politics and how it was the Empire was orchestrating this war between House Atreides and House Harkonnen, which. I didn't pick on, pick up on as easily in the book as I actually I think did watching the movie. See, I didn't realize the emperor was a separate person <laughs> um, until I went back and watched the first twenty five minutes of the movie. Did you think the Baron Harkonnen, the floaty guy, was the emperor? Like, or did you just not even think about? I just it? didn't like... make like an assumption, mostly just because they kept calling everyone different things. So I was like very like I don't know who is who but i recognize you know all the bald people are with house harkin <laughs> um and all the normal people are with atreides yep. isn't it yeah, yeah. you got it that more or less that that yeah, yeah that's it <laughs> yeah um oh and the blue-eyed people are the fremen um that's those yeah. are the factions really yes uh-huh um although i think i did call something in my head about uh, they made like there was an offhand comment that I fixated on when I was watching the movie about how they figured out how many Fremen were actually there, and Daddy Oscar Isaac was like, "Yes, it's <laughs> so good. There's so many of them." And I was just like, "Why is that? So, why is that important?" And then I was just like, "Oh right, it's because the other people think that there's only like fifty thousand of them, and therefore it's easy for them to be overtaken." And so I very much I got that like almost immediately as soon as like. Oscar Isaac was like very happy about it, so I think, I think I know where the next movie's going. <laughs> I um, think it's a pretty pretty uh, safe call. I, yeah. I have you are you aware that it's actually this whole story was inspired by Lawrence of Arabia? It makes sense. Yeah, I wasn't aware. That definitely gives you a big idea. I don't I don't think it's a big surprise with with how this movie ends. I think you can predict where the second part goes. Let me just um, Google that real quick. <laughs> you not know Lawrence of Arabia? I, mean, I, I know. don't know Lawrence of Arabia. Neither of you. Oh my god. <laughs> nope. Wow. You really got some bad movie watchers here. Yeah, I just is, want you to know. No and these two either. went to film school. <laughs> yeah, we went to film, but I've always said throughout film school that I was a bad movie watcher. Yeah, that's true. Same. That's I, true. You like you're talking to the two TV, TV people yeah, TV, actually yeah. in in our class. Yeah. I've seen two movies since uh, LA shutdown ended. Um, it was this one and Free Guy. Oh my god! <laughs> so, going off of your experience with the opening of Dune, you you mentioned that you actually managed to follow the plot pretty well, which I found interesting because I I heard from a lot of people, including in real life and on the the most dangerous parts of the internet, that it was difficult to follow, even though they'd seen like the entire movie. And so I'm curious for you what you know. There were some details you missed, but what what you think they did. Was it the visual storytelling, or, or how how was it that you were so easily able to follow the plot of Dune, even though you missed like the introductory exposition? Were you referring to Reddit when you said the? Yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was pretty straightforward in that there is a rich, like not a rich, a powerful family landing somewhere to exploit the stuff, um, and then everyone of showing them how to exist in this new world that they're not used to and i guess 
I feel like if the movie had started, you know, right when they landed on, um... Arrakis. Arrakis. Then I feel like it still would have worked just fine, because they could have interspersed some of the exposition throughout that. Because I did watch the first 25 minutes of the movie about a couple hours ago before coming here. <laughs> she um, did her homework. Uh, just to, to make sure I could speak on it. And it was weird, because the first time that we see Duncan Idaho, and he comes and he like gives Paul a big hug... When they're on Arrakis, I was like, "Oh, that's the first. That's his first appearance." I was like, "Oh, it's Jason Momoa." No, he's in, <laughs> he's in the first twenty five minutes of the movie. A lot of the first appearances genuinely felt like they could have been the second appearance. When you see Duncan Idaho, when you see his dad teaching him how to do things. I think the only scene that genuinely I feel like could have been would have been useful for me in viewing it is when the Baron was talking about how the Empire sent them there to not succeed, to fail. And what what about the voice? Is there even a scene, or is that another just? I like see. Little... I hopped in. I hopped in right. I told when... you. I told you that the Bene Gesserit had powers. Or basically, yes. yes. Oh. That was in my recast. Yes, because yeah. because it was actively happening in front yeah. of me. Yeah. Um. I think I hopped in right when he walks in and she uses the voice on him to make him come and kneel in front of her. And, like, I remember the first thing I saw in this movie was him being like, how dare you use the voice on me? Um, and I was like, how dare you speak to this esteemed woman like that? Like, that, like, that was my first impression of Paul. I definitely understood what was going on in that I did make the connection that the, the bloodlines and, like, the way that they were doing it was very politically measured. But I didn't make the connection that uh, his mom and his dad aren't married until way later. Okay, wait, actually, I didn't connect that either. I don't think they say it they until, don't say it. like, that scene where he's like, I should have married you. I don't think yeah. they... And then, and then after that, someone calls her his concubine. Yeah. yeah. And I was like... Oh, so yeah. she's just some bitch. See, that's that's how it is in the books too. But they, it's more. I think their relationship is super interesting. I remember it from reading Agreed. the book because she is just supposed to be, again, yeah, like this this person who's going to mother his children who was given to him. That's what like the Bene Gesserit are for, I think, or partially. That's, um, yeah, it's like one of the things. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that they do is like these women are given to these like powerful people, and then they mother their wealthy children but in the book and in the movie a little bit but it's just not really explained is that their relationship is so much more than that it's like really emotionally you know deep and and you do see it in like the little moments that they have between them Mm -hmm. but just the fact that it is abnormal for that to be the case because they're not married is totally like glossed over see that's (laughs) that's one of the things that i think actually the movie really misses out on that the book has that is like rather i think emotional is jessica and leto's relationship and how it plays out over the book just because yeah she's his concubine they never get married so that obviously like stings that he's like you know i won't marry you for these political reasons like he wants to be single like a bachelor just to use himself as like a holy grail for all of these other families that like maybe we can marry our daughters to him like maybe he could take advantage of his political situation and that obviously stings with her even though like they're in love they clearly love each other you know she's the mother of his son and then on top of that though because of that she's only a concubine she's kind of an outsider in the court and that she's from the Bene Gesserit sisterhood and in the books they know early on that there is a traitor in their midst and a lot of the characters think that Jessica 
is that traitor. And Leto even, Leto knows that she's not because he's like, I love her. I trust yeah. her. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't do it. But he pretends like he thinks she's the traitor to try to weed out the real traitor. And so it creates this whole, like, it's it's kind of convoluted. But it, like, it misses out on, I think, some of the, like, emotional nuances of mm-hmm. their relationship in this story. You, you feel her divided loyalties, but I don't know that you necessarily feel, like, how much she's an outsider mm-hmm. um, in the court and how little everyone actually trusts her. And no one trusts the Bene Gesserit either because, like, people call them witches. Like, there's all this, yeah. there's, there's a general, like, mistrust because of their abilities and everything. Yeah. Um, and because they're, I mean, they're literally... They rule everything from the shadows, like mm-hmm. Paul says, I think, in one of the opening scenes. That's really why they, like, send all of their Bene Gesserit sisters into these powerful families, is so they can mm-hmm. manipulate, you know, their husbands, their whatever the male version of concubine is, the, their lovers. And so, yeah, there's definitely a general distrust that way that I don't think is necessarily played up as much as it could be. I think as far as adaptations go, though, something like that is so easy to get rid of. Because, like, I feel like it would make it way more complicated yeah yeah um it's even a little complicating now with like two throwaway lines about it it makes Mm -hmm. you wonder like oh and then now he's dead so it's like what's the right you know what's the big well and the the concubine thing actually i think is really important to the story long term because jessica's being a concubine not only informs her character it informs totally how paul down the line without getting into spoilers into part two but how Paul makes some political moves and yeah. sort of his relationship with some women in his life that it ends up being very influential. But you're right. Definitely the like, who's the traitor plot was like very easy to cut, which I think gets to the heart of what you have to do with a lot of these adaptations. Like even with as complicated as the movie was, you have to like trim out everything that isn't the core of the story. Mm-hmm. And I know Denis Villeneuve has talked about that in interviews that like, what really is this story about? That's why you don't get a lot from Dr. Huey which also was a thing that hurt me that like he's a nothing character in the movie but i don't think he i didn't like him being the traitor in the book either i didn't care about it at all see i thought i thought he's a fascinating character in the book that especially because he's like you know he's a traitor from the Mm get-go that's a thing in the book chasey that like it's not a twist he's like revealed in like chapter three so you spend all this time with him knowing that he's going to betray them, that he's scheming with the Harkonnens, mm-hmm. which I found really interesting because normally it is played like in, in, in your average story, it would be played like it is in the movie where it's like, oh, the big twist is it's the doctor. But in the book, it's like, no, you know, like that the, it's just meant to build suspense and it's like gradually building up this feeling of dread. Well, I think they, they could have built up suspense in the movie then. I mean, because ultimately he doesn't really matter, right? He's just yeah. he be, he betrays them. And he's kind of like a device. Yeah. So I think if they treated him like that in the movie and we saw him say in that opening scene, Chase, that you were talking about with the Harkonnens somehow, or it was discussed in some way that there was a traitor and we knew it was him, then, I mean, we can go into like screenwriting mm-hmm. lessons yeah. right now. Yeah. That's how you build suspense. Totally. It's not by keeping things a mystery. I do that. So Reveal I'm, the bomb under the table. Yeah. You, I've talked you about tell that people, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I do a lot of freelance work for amateurs, like screenwriters. It's like the number one lesson that I'm trying to tell people is actually being vague and trying to like keep things mysterious gets you nowhere in yeah. the long run. And telling people up front... So that way we know what to expect and we're like afraid of what to expect down the line is so much more powerful in terms of suspense. Well, and, yeah. And I think it's it's also like 
you have to use both tools like kind of wisely like mm -hmm. and the best mysteries work when they're suspenseful you know so it's like it's like the inherent premise of a murder mystery where it's well you know someone was murdered it's not like you're hiding the fact that someone was murdered like who is the murderer is the question mm -hmm. you know so it's like the dr ua thing doesn't really mean much if you're not having people actually be like well who's the traitor Mm -hmm. yeah. Where's the traitor among us, you know? So it's less impactful than if you actually like build up that as yeah. the mystery has to be suspenseful. And if there is no suspense to the mystery, then it's just like a bit of mystique around the edges. Again, because in the movie it was clearly set up that Atreides was being put on Arrakis for some reason and we knew it wasn't gonna end well. They're super paranoid. Like they know that like the Harkonnen, someone is gonna come for them. And so if we know that, then we can also know that they're probably looking for spies in their midst and stuff like that. So we can have this idea of a traitor really easily incorporated earlier, I think. Yeah, I think they could have done yeah. more. Even like, I don't think it would have even taken that many additions, you know, whether they wanted to keep UA a secret or not. If you just have people like use that word traitor and talk about mm -hmm. like, there's a traitor among us. They, I don't think they ever say that. Nope. They, and they allude to it with like, oh, you know. There's that scene where Paul finds the little flying thing and then kills it. Oh, yeah. And then he gets really mad at his, like, first in command for not, like, taking care of, like. Yeah. And then the guy tries to quit. Like, and they have, like, a little blow-up scene about, like, who's here? There's a spy. Like, whatever. Um, but they, nothing really happens with that because then the Harkonnen just attack. Well, and there's the guy in the wall. Is like that's yeah. the answer oh, they get. So they didn't even say like that's the guy who was con controlling the drone, and uh -huh. they they again they don't even question like well how I mean I guess he'd been there they said for like six months or something. But why explain that away? But, you know yeah, like, right. why why not keep why not play it a up the yeah. traitor? Yeah, exactly. They should. I think that's something that would have improved the suspense. Because yeah. I do think the movie is does a good job of building the dread and the suspense by being like we know it's a trap. This is a trap. Something mm. is going to go wrong. Hitting that over and over again. But it, that would have been an added layer, I think, that would have really, especially if you, you know, revealed Dr. Yue and you're like waiting to see, well, like, how is this going to go wrong? Right. When he was revealed to be the traitor and when he was killing Leto, I was just like, oh, of course that makes sense um, that the doctor was the person doing it because the pills that knocked them out so badly. <laughs> but like they didn't, they barely even, sh I mean, they showed him giving the pills to Paul, but like you could have given us like a little bit more yeah, in terms of like foreshadowing that just a little bit. There's no hints before then no. that he could be the traitor. I mean, he's like hardly in the movie. He just like checks Paul out a couple times. That's all he does yeah, in the that, movie. Was that the first that. time that he appears yes. because i was like who is this guy who's inspecting him after yeah. the it's yeah, before the, the benny jesuit yeah. uh, reverend mother scene that's his first oh, appearance okay, is right okay. before then yeah no i mean going off of something you kind of alluded to chasey earlier that like the movie hits a lot of the same beats multiple times so even though you came into the late into the movie you could still follow it generally totally. which i think is i actually talked about this in the last episode that i think that's necessary in a lot of these sci-fi stories or like mm -hmm. secondary world stories where like you have so much jargon you have to explain that you need to hit it over and over again because if you just do it once a big chunk of the audience is going to miss it it's a testament to you as a viewer that you manage to follow along even with just like seeing duncan idaho and paul the one time like picking up on relationships as you go that sort of thing but i think this was an instance where did we really need to see dr ua just like examine paul multiple times as opposed to like clarifying maybe more about who he actually is you know yeah. like what yeah. his relationship is like with them right on a more personal level 
because that's that's a, a criticism leveled at the book and the movie and that i think has some validity to it a lot of people say that it's kind of a cold story that they have a hard time get, like getting emotionally invested in it and in the characters and so i'm curious how you guys reacted like what emotion did the movie make you feel were there any characters that you felt emotionally connected to and which ones maybe less so in terms of connecting emotionally i didn't really connect emotionally to any of them Hmm. um i think we saw so little of so many people that it was hard um i was surprised that duck in idaho died and that kind of was like oh that's a bummer he's fun nice to look at um (laughs) but i think the core feeling that i took away from this film was like the mother-son relationship of it all right i mean we talked about obviously the concubine trader stuff but that dynamic for the three of them so fully informs the way that she feels about her son and i know he's 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 a teenager we're supposed to be he's growing up he's growing up he's taking over that's really important to consider like what teenage boys are like with their moms um but because like obviously he cares very much about her and they protect each other but they're also so in tune i didn't really feel emotionally like, connected to singular characters but i definitely felt emotionally connected to that relationship and to me felt like the core relationship of the first film yeah, I think I would, it definitely is. I would totally agree with that. I yeah. like their relationship a lot. I think if I Love felt her. connected to anyone, <laughs> it would be Jessica. Yeah. I think she's the best um, character in the movie. Oh, yeah. For totally, sure. Totally. Yeah. I don't think I felt super connected to Paul. And I was thinking about this because his arc and how he is told that he is, you know, the chosen one, which then I think back to, you know, my childhood favorite, which is Harry Potter. Right. Um, And how it's kind of the same thing where he's told at a young age, you're, you know, the chosen one. But why do we feel so much more connected to him than we do to like Paul at the same time then I think oh Harry is for sure my least favorite character Um, (laughs) so is it just like kind of an inherent thing with these heroes I guess when they're told that they're gonna be you know the main character because they're sort of larger than life in a way or like projected to be that humanize Harry Potter I think he is like brought down to earth like so often and I think that's really important and I think it was probably hard to to give Paul an arc in this like first half. Yeah. Well, that's that was one of the big criticisms too. That a lot of the, the criticisms that I'm even talking about are ones I specifically heard from Hannah, who has been on this podcast. That you know Paul's arc is really kind of muddied. Like right. I think it's almost sort of a broad coming of age. Like I I, I defined it as him like accepting power and deciding to wield it. Mm-hmm. Because right. he kind of starts and he's hesitant to be like, am I going to be the Duke? Am I going to be the Lisan Al-Gaib? Like, I don't want any of that. And then by the end, he's like, yeah, I'm the fucking Lisan Al-Gaib. I'm going with the Fremen, mom. Fuck you. Let's go. I still think it can be heightened, though, because, you know, even in the beginning, he, I think they're trying to make him active when, like, in the very first scene with Duncan, where he's like, let me go with you. Like, I want to help. I'm, You know, he's trying to sort of like make his father proud i guess but mm-hmm. it felt a little out of place like i didn't yeah. i didn't feel hesitancy on his part in terms of like taking the reins i felt like wasn't expecting to take over so soon because his dad is presumably mm. healthy and young um and but he is taking that next stage in his life that is expected of him 
True. And he seems to expect it. And obviously there's parts of him that, like, you know, want to do things on his own terms, like go mm-hmm. to go with Duncan, and that is you know exciting and something that he can choose but then it's taken away from him by his dad because he can't, he can't go for reasons mm-hmm. but i think it's interesting to consider the hands-offness of his dad kind of just being like yeah sure you can start stepping up like you can start learning what i do sure versus how firm his mother is with him she's definitely the bigger presence in oh, totally. his life oh totally and both nurturing and like scolding him and, and i think that's true to the book that their relationship is much more important and much more, I think, definitive for Paul. Um, And I'm curious what you guys think about this, that my theory about why, sort of on a craft level, Paul maybe isn't as compelling to a lot of people. Like, I I found myself really connected to him, but that's also because I know what his story is overall. Mm -hmm. So I know, like, what individually, like, in scenes he's feeling and, like, growing into. But he is one, as you guys have alluded to, a very inactive protagonist for the vast majority of the movie. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of there. Mm-hmm. And then tied into that, his flaw, like what he has to grow past his like hesitancy to act, right. doesn't cost him anything. Yeah, It's I... not like he had any control. He doesn't create the problems in the right. story. He simply is there. I mean, and going back to, again, me doing so much coverage for so many <laughs> scripts, that's, you know, uh, what I've spent a lot of my time doing lately. And it's just these inactive protagonists are so so hard to connect to and it comes like i wonder if he just needed like i tell people this i'm like can you give them a goal it can be like literally the opposite of what they need to do at the end but if they want something and it's like clear to the audience it just makes it so much easier and that, for us to relate to them that's the rock in the hard place with this movie i think is that denis was such a fan of the book and Paul in the first half of the book is not active. Like that's a hundred percent true to the book. Mm-hmm. But you know, is that something then that you need to change to find a way to make Paul more directly involved in the events going on around him and like have him actually pursuing something as opposed to just being there. And like you said, I think they tried to do that at times with him, like trying to preempt the trip to Arrakis and like yeah. go with Duncan Idaho, but it just doesn't really work. Like you said, it feels kind of out of place and almost just sort of a superficial yeah. nod towards giving Paul something to do because he spends most of the movie not doing anything, just like standing around thinking, which can work a little better in a book when you're actually in their head. But when you're just seeing the character, it's like, okay, like, you know, it's hard to emotionally connect to them. Yeah, that scene of him trying to go to Arrakis is almost immediately followed, if I remember correctly, by him talking to his father and his father being like, it's okay if you don't want to lead, you're still going to be my son. Right. Like, so it's like not even there's not even stakes to it then, right? What does he want? It does make you care about kind of it makes their relationship feel warmer, but it doesn't necessarily make Paul feel like that sympathetic. Yeah, Yeah. like he's not being challenged. Yeah, characters need to man characters need to be active. I think, and they need to be challenged. Paul's (laughs) not really challenged. His parents just kind of be like, "You need to do this thing," especially (laughs) Jessica. And Paul's like, "I guess." Like I think that's part of the reason why the Reverend Mother scene is one of my favorite scenes Mm -hmm. is because it's a scene where Paul really is personally challenged. And it means a lot to him, not only on the personal level, that his mom basically betrayed him, but then it's the life or death stakes of like, is he going to pass this test or is he not? Is he going to overcome his animal instincts? I think that is something missing with Paul. And that Harry always has. You know, Harry was actually always my favorite character, but (laughs) I always have a soft spot for main characters. Um, But uh, Harry is always active. Harry's always causing problems. Like, that's like his big flaw, you know, which I I think it's actually in some ways a superficial flaw because for most of the books, he like 
doesn't really cause that many consequences. Like, book five is, like, one of the big ones. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but, like, he's driving the plot through most of the stories. Right. As opposed to Paul, who, at least in this first half, I think this does change in the second half, but in this first half, Paul is just present. And I feel like he would work much better as a character if if he either actively really didn't want to take his father's Mm -hmm. footsteps or if he actively really wanted to. Like he's yeah. just yeah. like like we, like you were both saying like he's just very very passive, and like the midpoint of this movie, for me feels like it's probably the inciting incident of the book. That's more or less the case. Yeah. It happens later than you would uh-huh. expect yeah. in a traditional like three act structure, but mm-hmm. it's, it, yeah. I mean, it's more or less like a third of the way through it. It's only a little later than it would traditionally be in yeah. three acts. Which which scene are you talking? Like which um, inciting like incident? Attack. Then- attacking yeah no i looked at it the harkonnen uh, the harkonnen's attacking and everything blowing up and and father dying is like literally just past the halfway mark yeah oh really which is wild because i was wondering i looked at it on Mm -hmm. hbo max after we watched it because i was like oh you mean in the movie in the movie movie. yeah Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. but sorry yeah but i just that was another thing i guess structurally for the movie that i guess I said, like, the second half lost me. Well, I walked out of it feeling like the, like I had no sense of time watching mm. this film, obviously, because I hopped in late. But, like, <laughs> uh, I had no sense of time. So when they had the fight with the Fremen guy, I thought it, I thought we were halfway through the movie. Right. I no, that feels out, like a I midpoint. It does. It was the midpoint. Because it is. It's the midpoint of the Paul's midpoint. story. It, yeah. it is. <sighs> Which is the great... Paul's never killed a man. Yeah, Exactly. The big criticism you see in, like, all the reviews, like, everything all over the internet is, like, this feels like an incomplete story. Because it literally is an incomplete is, story. Yeah. And so, fundamentally, like, it is structured, actually, I think, in a pretty traditional yeah, way. Right. Both as a movie and, like, in terms of its place, I'm like, sh- the overarching book. That is the midpoint of the story. That is Paul making a decision yeah. from which, like, he can't turn back from. Like, that I'm, defines his journey. I'm positive. This, part two comes out. You watch him back to back. It's a six-hour perfect film right 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 like I, and this I, one i think has three acts like you have like the inciting incident is like going to arrakis like arriving on arrakis three acts but there's no goal right well no i mean that's <laughs> yeah, the big I, difference yeah, yeah is that I think... paul doesn't have a traditional goal but i mean if you look yeah. like the structure of the mm-hmm. the plot right and, and i think when you're talking about structure it probably should be related to character goals and character arc more than plot yeah. because that's what we emotionally connect to mm-hmm. but in, in terms of the story, it's like an inciting incident is Arrakis. Midpoint is the attack. Right. Um, the end of the second act is like finding out his dad's dead and they're on their own and on the run. That's the big low point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and probably specifically the tent scene uh, where Paul is freaking out because not only does he now know his dad is dead, but he is I like. I would say that's the low point. I would say Duncan dying is the low point. I think Duncan dying might be a low point. Oh, yeah. that's true. Because yeah. now like, he's lost even Duncan. Yeah, yeah. I think because yeah. it's like we got some hope. We're hiding out. This lady's helping us. And then Duncan dies. And then... Well, that almost is too late in the movie. I yeah. feel like that's in the third act. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, I guess... I would say that's least... the end of the second act. No, I... Maybe Duncan Dine is like the all hope is lost in the yeah, third act. That's what, yeah, you know, because like I, I would we these are technically two different yeah. plot beats, you know. Where see this is this is how flimsy those act structure is. Is like yeah. how do you want to define that? This is one of the things that I always struggle with. Actually, what we're touching on now, which is like people will talk about how the dark night of the soul is like the end of the second act, darkest moment for the hero, and yet then there's an all hope is lost moment in the third act, which is like when it seems like the plot is fucked and the heroes aren't going to win. And I guess my argument is that. Paul is at his lowest emotional moment in the tent 
where he just found out his dad's dead. He's lost like his mm-hmm. duchy and everything. And he just saw the future that he's going to be responsible for a holy war that's going to leave like a fuck ton of people dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think if you talk about his relationship with his mom as the emotional core of the movie, which I think it mm-hmm. is, this is true. that's their lowest point. Yeah. That, that this is Paul finally lashing out and being like, fuck you. You made me into a monster. You made me into a freak. Yeah. You yeah. know? And she's like, just, she has nothing to say because he's right. She did do that. And then the the all hope is lost moment is, oh, they even their like safe house is fucked and they're on they lost whatever allies they had. Duncan Idaho is dead. But I mean you're right, like you can interpret it however you want. And again, ultimately what I was getting to is then you have the third act, which is that final like confrontation with the Sardaukar and then stumbling upon the Fremen. But it's not a climax. The climax of the movie happens halfway through the movie. Exactly. Like that's the emotional climax of the movie. The third act of the movie is not as climactic, which is why it feels so like unsatisfying and just like odd but then when you look at it as an overall like two-part story it then makes sense where you're like oh yeah that is the midpoint yeah yeah it's bizarre that way i think i liked everything that happens and i i i I liked so much like of the beginning and you know i'm a premise person but so like i like (laughs) the fellowship of the ring like that's you know my favorite of the trilogy because like i love beginnings but like even like and that movie too because I'm thinking about that in comparison to this movie because Lord of the Rings was also considered one of those like unadaptable Mm -hmm. um, like behemoths Um, but that movie too I mean it has even though it's just you know it's the ending of that is not really a climax in the grand scheme of things but it is this climactic moment and so I think going back to that um, talking about Paul, if he has a stronger arc in this movie, if he had a stronger arc in Dune Part 1, then the ending fight would feel like the ending fight of the Fellowship of the Ring in the sense where it's like a, an emotional reckoning more so. Yeah. Um, if we know from the beginning that Paul is maybe afraid of his capability or like, you know, like the whole idea of Paul has never killed a man. That's a, like a line that she says, yes. which mm-hmm. never has sunk in to us watching right. it up until that literally before. that moment. Yeah. But it ties into his whole, I guess maybe it's an unwillingness to, to, to act, to act an unwillingness to take charge, maybe being afraid of like his potential. If he does take charge, right. If that's his inner conflict, the whole movie and we get to that ending, that ending feels powerful, you know, yeah. But right now, I don't think it does. It felt you know, kind of eh. I think I think they function virtually in the same way. The two, the fel- I think Fellowship is a great comparison point mm-hmm. in that, like you said, the, the ending of both movies is not a climax, but it is kind of an emotional turning point for the characters. And the big difference, I think, is actually not even in, in terms of like how complex or how simple the plot is, I think, or even the goals. Because like, Frodo's goal, like, he's kind of just strung along throughout the movie. He's not that much more active until the end of the movie where he decides to go out on his own. He does have the moment in Rivendell where he's like, I'm going to be the hero, but, like... Well, that's the midpoint. Right. Yeah. Uh, But I think the big difference is that Frodo's arc is clearly set up from the beginning that he's going to have to contend with the emotional corruption of the ring and that he constantly is facing that throughout the entire movie of Fellowship as opposed to Paul who is not constantly challenged about, like, are you going to step up or mm-hmm. not, you know? Frodo's arc is, like, much more, like, obvious and baked into the plot, while Paul's is kind of just, like, background more than it is actually the plot itself. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that, too, because 
one of the scenes that perplexed me in the beginning that I watched a few hours ago <laughs> um, was him sparring with the, his dad's little first in command guy. Gurney Halleck. Uh-huh. And... Like, what a name, Gurney Halleck. <laughs> and I don't think he was introduced super well, unfortunately. No. I remember him a lot more in the book than... He's been way bigger character in the book. Yeah. yeah. Duncan Idaho is a way smaller character in the book. That's one of the weird things. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, keep going. Yeah, yeah but I, just like the sparring scene was like, oh, that kind of factors into him at the end actually fighting. Because mm. when I first saw the movie, like I was just like, where did these skills come from? How is he fighting against, like, one of the most skilled warriors, apparently, on this whole planet Mm, um, (laughs) that even Duncan Idaho struggled against? That scene and the scene where his mother kills someone in the little gunship when they're being taken Mm. away to the middle of the desert um, after they, like, after she gets them to take off her bonds and she just slices someone's neck. And there was a moment where they have, like, a reaction shot on Paul reacting to that, Mm. which I think that's all the foreshadowing we get on whether or not he has killed a man. You know, and and it's interesting because I think in the book, this is another one of those translations from books to movie that I think they missed out on, that in the book, I think Jessica even either says to him or has an internal thought, oh yeah, Paul's never killed a man. He doesn't know what this is like. Mm. Yeah. Right after she does that. Because that scene is taken like straight from the book. I but that, that doesn't... I did like that scene. Yeah, oh, I love that scene. that scene. is so great. Um, when Jessica does the power word kill shit. Oh. Yeah, but also just a little bit of humor. I was amazed at how far it took, like where she was like, your tone was wrong yeah. or whatever. And we just yeah. like, even in like this awful, awful moment, we get a little bit of comedy. And I was like, I didn't realize how much I was craving a little bit of comedy. Like... That's what's fun about <laughs> stories like this, I know. Though. Sorry to completely derail you. No, go <laughs> for it. I, I have like, thoughts about the comedy in like, this movie, like too. This, like, that, like, that's why she's one of the, I think, better characters in the movie, is because she... Even watching the early scene when she has him do the cup, move the cup thing... Um, not move the cup, but tell her to move the cup, and he really can't do it, and... But he does it kind of. And she has like a little flash. And then she's excited. Yeah. Like like the way that she gets, she lights up as soon as he almost gets it. I'm just like, that's like seeing those, what the characters care about is what made me emotionally connect with them. Which is why like you can tell that she cares about him. And you can tell that she cares about the voice stuff. <laughs> so like him and the voice stuff merging is like her favorite thing. On humor, uh, the book is not humorous. There's like very few. There, there are some jokes, but I, it's even drier in that way than I think the movie is. That I, and I appreciate the movie at least. Like it's still a very serious movie, but that there are moments that it threw in, and I do think it probably could have used at times more humor or approached the humor slightly differently. Like I think there's the one joke at the beginning of the film where you see it in the trailers too, where Leto's like smile, Gurney, and Gurney like completely stone faces like i am smiling and it's like that is a, a good character introduction and could be like funny but the music played over it completely kills the joke <laughs> where it's like it's so serious you're like i can't laugh like also, it's not funny it's like versus but then we're laughing at this other stuff so the thing about sci-fi is like like you have to really lean into it or you're gonna find out something's goofy yeah. so yeah. like 
like the name Duncan Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> or just like all stuff, like, you know, like just these moments where they're talking about things really seriously. Desert but Desert power. Desert power. <laughs> Dude, Hannah could not stop laughing at it. She lost it every time they said desert power. Yeah, you Oh feel my it. God, like... you, you, that should have been cut. Desert power. <laughs> the, the best part is I saw the movie without having seen the scene at the beginning. Oh my God. Where his dad goes, we've got land power, we've got water power, no, we need desert power. <laughs> And then the end of the movie, he goes, desert power. <laughs> it's, it, it's like a Power Rangers line. Like, it's right. just not, it does not, it does not fit at all. And it, it's just the nature of things. Like, I'm sitting there knowing that, like, if you lean into it, it won't be as goofy. But anyone else watching is going to be like, this is really cheesy. But there is some, like, in, there's going to be cheesiness, I think, in a lot of sci-fi things. Um, and I am all for, like accepting it embracing it even if you're going to be like super self-serious again going back to lord of the rings which is a self like very serious movie yeah um but it knows where to add things to you know i think the movies are funnier than the books the books have a sense of humor but like it's rare and it's very british like dry humor while the movies have more of a diversity of humor yeah and really really use the characters of like gimli and legolas and stuff to like yeah and like marion pippin you know who are much more serious in the book yeah. Um, to like add levity to it. You know yeah. who I actually think is really funny? I, a scene I thought was really funny was Stilgar's introduction when he walks in. I thought, uh, what's his name? I, mean, I thought it was really well oh, edited. Spitting. But yeah, the spitting and like his, uh, oh my God, uh, Javier Bardem, I thought just acted the hell out of that scene. I thought mm. he was so funny. I really hope oh, that when they, he leaves too. Yes. He's just like, and he I'm just done. Walks, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, this conversation <laughs> is over. I have nothing more to say. And he just walks out. Oh yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. That was excellent. Oh, I, I, I think if they in part two, like really play up like the Fremen, like dry sense of humor and Stilgar's character, I think could like add mm. some much needed levity to the story. Yeah. Um, cause I, I loved Stilgar. Stilgar was also one of my favorite characters. He was like hardly in the movie who I really liked. I don't know the name of the guy that he kills, but it was interesting to me that it did feel like even though he just showed up at the end, we knew him because of all of Paul's, like, I like guess their dreams. Dreams, yeah. Um, but I thought that was well done because I almost felt like we were losing a character that I kind of knew. It's really interesting yeah. that way, that it's like you get him and he's just like a prick when you actually see him in the main story like he's just like an aggressive like prick who's just there to challenge Paul like he could be such a one note character and he is in the book but in the movie they took the time to like flesh him out through those scenes which is such an unusual way to flesh out a character by showing us what could have been but it also and showing us his humanity yeah so and this is what Denis does so well <laughs> right and I'm not gonna talk about Arrival but you can talk about it I if mean... you out me to everyone for having not seen Arrival <laughs> I just out myself you just so. out yourself yeah um, well, I've been meaning to get a, to it anyway thing. I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to spoil it for you but the whole like establishing things through visions flashbacks flash forwards like I think is such a very good directing piece when it's done well and he does it so well Mm -hmm. and i think the other thing too is with chani's character like we see her smiling in every single one of his visions and the first time she is actually there she is giving him the biggest side eye ever like it's it also is in contrast with the guy who challenges him like he's kind he's nice he's giving paul advice in these visions right and then 
he's just some prick who's challenging him. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with Chani. Like, she is like, mm, here's this, here you can have this sword that... So you die so you honorably. die honorably. Because like, <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> um, and it's just like, that's that's good. Because I think it also shows us like the way that Paul is seeing the world. And it kind of makes you realize that maybe the other visions or whatever they are, like are not as cut and dry as they seem in the vision versus, 100%. like, the world. Right. Yeah. It's a good, I mean, it's a mechanism to mm-hmm. use, like, absolutely mm-hmm. so well. 100%. We're going to go back to me being a coverage person once again. <laughs> Hate what dreams or flashbacks or flash forwards or especially voiceover used mm-hmm. badly. So when it's used well, it's so good. And this movie does them all. This, so it does, well. it does yeah. everyone. It does all the different flashing arounds. It does voiceover. And yeah. that is that is a thing you'll hear like broadly as a rule with screenwriting is like, don't do voiceover. It's lazy and the audience will like emotionally check out. Don't do flashbacks or flash forwards. It's lazy. You know, it's cheap. It's not, you know, the, it, you can do better. But like when you see it done well, it's like, oh yeah, there are no rules. Like you just yeah. have to do it like competently. Yeah. And, and Denis is a master of like that of... sort of subversive. I mean, what I think was a very classical Hollywood storytelling, but we sort of have moved away from. He manages to bring it back with his own flavor. With sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. with sci-fi. Like, which is just fucking fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Arrival is so I good. I wasn't actually aware if I could cuss on this or not. No, you can cuss. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone always asks that. Everyone's like, are we are we censoring? Because most podcasts are. And I'm like, I could not do. I would have to constantly like bleep myself. Like it would just, I, I don't mean to. I've cursed around like little babies. It's just like not. <laughs> I have a censor around adults and babies. Oh yeah, I had I'm a censor. Um, I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you'll hear me say most of the time that I hate voiceovers and i hate well it's especially voiceovers but and it's not because of whatever rule we learned it's because most of the time it's it's done badly useless it's done badly exactly and yeah well one of the things you'll see it used really lazily for is like to either establish something that you could just show them very Mm -hmm. easily or you're showing them something and then doing the voiceover telling the audience what you're showing them and it's like it would be more effective if you just showed them it right as opposed to like Using it to, one, establish character like they kind of do in this movie with Chani, but two, to then, like, fill in the details to clarify what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's when voiceover is used best is when there is a level of you're filling in in between the, the dots. Right. You know, or also if there's, like, a level of dramatic irony like there is in American Beauty where, you know, right. I don't know if you guys know how that movie opens if you've seen it, but it opens with the, the character, rough movie to go back to now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. Spacey, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it opens with Kevin Spacey's character. Like, it's a beautiful view of, like, this, like, classic uh, red brick suburban neighborhood. And Kevin Spacey goes, yeah, like, this is the story of how I die or something like mm-hmm. that. And it, it's, like, this, like, dichotomy is striking and kind of, like, pulls you into the movie immediately. And I, I well, I don't think Dune necessarily does it as quite as interestingly as American Beauty. I think mm-hmm. it does help that it's kind of filling in between the lines for you also it helps that it's not like paul narrating oh yeah um that it's chani yeah and it's someone else the example i always use for like when voiceover is a necessary and b great is the handmaid's tale it's like my favorite instance that's my favorite use of voiceover because it's the only reason she has a character especially in the first season oh yeah and it's It's like funny which is wild because she Mm -hmm. like has this like sick like 
sense of can humor you, you know can you just like briefly explain just yeah. so we uh oh. yeah, what what the voiceover is like in the handsmaid tale for people Handmaid's who haven't tale, yeah. seen it um, before yeah so because she's silenced because she's in captivity and basically um has no other like means of expressing herself for her safety basically she the only way she stays sane is through these like inner monologues um, in which she is talking to the audience. Right. She's talking to someone um, in the hopes that, like, eventually it'll be heard. But, right. like, it is in her head. Yeah. And through it, we just get, we get all of her personality because she's really, like, she's smart and witty and she's funny. But, again, she's silenced. So, just hearing that, it adds all the character oh, yeah. to it. Um, but it's it's done, again, and, and it's necessary. It's not extraneous. Dune, I think, could survive without the first four minutes of the movie. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it, it's four minutes of exposition. Four minutes. And I looked at the clock. Um, <laughs> and it is, and it's not, it's not too much. It's just enough to mm-hmm. kind of give you a, oh, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it dies into the people, which I think is useful and, yeah. and easy to do and not overbearing, which I think, you know, our main criticism of voiceover has thus far been uh, relying on it too much and when it's not necessary this is, yeah, and this yeah. is not relying on it right like i said like you can understand what's going on without that four minutes of exposition you know the the handmaid's tale uh one reminds me of sort of the classic noir voiceover where it's like it kind of is adding a personality to it's a character cheeky. who's very yeah. like stoic yeah you know where you get them you know not only like clarifying aspects of the world but like clarifying their own personality and what they actually think and feel internally while you see them externally being very stoic Mm -hmm. and very composed pulling us going off of another thing that i think denis does that you're told like don't do this this is a cliche it's shitty he introduces paul by having paul wake up oh my god i thought about that when i when i watched (laughs) the first 25 minutes of the and it's I, I mean, I don't know that it's necessary per se, but it is like it works for him because his dreams are so important yeah. as opposed to Paul just waking up and hitting an alarm clock that he hates and like looking in the mirror and having like disheveled bed head and being like, whatever, and then going downstairs and maybe having a dressing montage and then eating breakfast yeah. and being late for school, mm-hmm. you know, like you see in every fucking screen. But I'm sure you've seen that exact thing oh, on like a billion scripts. Yeah. You have to know like what's fat and what's like the meat of the story and like Mm -hmm. whittling it down and that's so necessary in adaptations but i think that's necessary in any story where it's like did you need to flesh out dr ua more did you need to establish more of jessica's relationship with leto i'm not implying anything one way or another like you know i think that's up to the viewer to an extent but like that informs what the end product is and how good the end product is do you think it's better with or without those things? You know, what is absolutely necessary? Is voiceover absolutely necessary in the story? And I think that's one of the real challenges for any writer on any project, but especially adaptations. What is necessary? What is the story about? And what, you know, can you just take out what's extraneous? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Dune is going to be hard for people that want to have a good time or just like don't want to enjoy a movie. <laughs> well, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I think it's enjoyable, but I do think there's an element of paying attention and there's an element of patience. And if you're just... Well, Lord of the Rings is like that too, you know? I I think it... I have seen online the, like, Twitter and Reddit audience sort of... And I don't know if they can be taken as an average moviegoer, but, like, the people who, like, are just, like, 
Toby people. Twitter? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. This, outside of that, that it's like I had no idea what was going on, but like it looked pretty cool, and like that was the thought, you know. And so you Lord know, of the I Rings, can see that. I I know from you know just at, like my experience that Lord of the Rings does span a different bridge like in terms of people who don't necessarily aren't aren't necessarily huge fantasy fans um and that one does like people do like that movie even if they're don't i i think that lord of the rings which i don't know if we've touched on yet in this discussion is simpler than dune my question is also how many of them saw it after all the movies came out because the conversation around fellowship the ring when it came out was a lot like the conversation around dune right now right um i i think actually those movies have a lot in common they're they're definitely not the same they have different tones right you know dune definitely feels more like headier more sci-fi in that Mm. way it's more philosophical um which i do think makes fellowship ultimately more accessible like you're saying it definitely feels simpler but i think that once we have the second part the conversation might change a bit. You know, I see that. Yeah. I have a thought in terms of like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones having such a normalized local audience who maybe haven't read the books mm. is like, I feel like that's the difference between fantasy and sci-fi. Sci- that's bit. what I was talking, trying to a touch on bit. earlier a little bit. Sci-fi really like people don't want to lean into it people as don't easily lean into it. as no. easily as they want to lean into fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what exactly it is because to me they're very similar on a lot of different levels. Pro- but so sci-fi is infinitely more plausible, right? Which is, like weird to me. But there's something about it that again just strikes people a lot. Oftentimes it's goofy, as like cheesy, as like there's something that doesn't I like people don't want to just buy into it they want to be like they want to treat it a little bit as a joke so i I don't know why i have a few theories about this the first is that fantasy is like inherently unreal and that the idea that sci-fi could be real makes it harder to buy into if something to you feels off Mm. sort of uncanny valley stuff right and the second theory is kind of the opposite of that, which is like you see the sci-fi that people really do connect to in a very broad audience way is like Star Wars, which also has wizards and laser swords and shit and is like a fantasy story with a sci-fi skin, you know? And so I do wonder if it's like, is it like the magic and the whimsy of fantasy that, mm. you know, connects it that way? I, I think, you know, that is going to be the thing that stops Dune from being like reaching that same heights is the sort of like sci-fi-ness of it all mm-hmm. although it has an underbelly that is kind of feels like fantasy for sure um, with all the houses and shit it to me is feels kind of like game of thrones meets lord of the rings but just like a little more like i don't know headier it's when... not as like sexy or sexy but not yeah sexy at all yeah <laughs> except for jessica i don't know the entire cast the is pretty sexy i i'm just jessica power would kill hard disagree i mean i do love <laughs> i love jessica, jessica. Is sexy as hell, but... no I'm, I'm just in terms of no i'm not gonna say that um <laughs> i forgot that i was in public <laughs> um, no uh i think i lost it completely sorry i was about to say something very intelligent and cool it's gone <laughs> there definitely is though like getting to what you're saying a difference between how people react to fantasy and sci-fi and I do, I wonder, yeah, what that is. Mm-hmm. 
have ideas, but I don't, I can't say for certain. People definitely seem to connect more to like, well, I don't know. Like, I feel like even in terms of what people connect to, they connect more to modern day sort of stuff. Like Harry Potter is bigger than Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. you know? And like superheroes are bigger than maybe any of those except Harry Potter. Um, Yeah, I feel like the the modern day aspect of it doesn't make it seem so alien i guess it's more accessible right. that way yeah because yeah, i would call marvel sci-fi um in that they've got the science and the fiction <laughs> um but there's also obviously powers and everything like yeah that. marvel superheroes are kind of i was thinking about this too how where it sits in terms of whether it's sci-fi or whether it's fantasy because it really is kind of an in-between mm. Um, I forget the difference in definition between sci-fi and fantasy, but they're really pretty close, and and Marvel Mm. sits, like, right in the middle, I would say, and my superheroes in general are are right in the middle. The thing about the definitions is they're constantly debated. Right. Like, I'm in the heart of these circles, and people argue about them all the time. (laughs) I like to think of sci-fi as kind of a, like, under-the-umbrella fantasy, because it's not real. Sci-fi is not real. It is a fantasy, but it's, like, a specific type of fantasy, oftentimes and even yeah. then it, they have their own subgenres. so i don't know it's a it's an interesting question and we'll see how you know <laughs> we've how really people gone react to dune i know we've gone way off that's topic. okay i don't know how much of that is going to make it on the pod but we'll see i was gonna say that um if you live in a world where there's a bunch of magical objects powered by magical powder um and like all this stuff and it's all really cool why are you living like in giant ancient egyptian temples why <laughs> why are you living like this i don't are you understand. thinking about dune yes yes yeah why? no i feel like a lot of sci-fi is like yes we love big mm-hmm. we love like you know we love a giant door and i'm just like mm, why <laughs> why do you love a giant door i love a giant door <laughs> thing, fantasy though. loves giant doors too yeah but fantasy is fantasy and sci i mean this is dune sci-fi is sci-fi is like, the dune sci-fi is some... is like we don't have any belongings <laughs> we just have this stone bed and a stone door and that's it that's all we need in this world with incredibly advanced scientific yeah incredibly um, advanced technology I, I don't know that i agree with you but i do think you're touching on something that is a difference which is i think sci-fi feels often colder and less human yeah, it's than cold. fantasy stories yeah. hum, fantasy stories often are more like heartwarming which is why i think i definitely tend to lean it's towards warm. fantasy yes. over yeah. sci-fi as a genre and i think that's a big reason why maybe star wars connects and breaks that divide is it is very human focused and also, it just has that's to maybe with... something that Dune struggled with is making you connect as much to the humans. Yeah, Dune is definitely colder. It comes down to like the visuals too, right? Like think about like in any fantasy you watch, like yeah, there's a castle that like mm-hmm. someone lives in, but then there's also like the little like thatched houses that you know just like a mm-hmm. small family lives in, and it's very like realistic in the sense that like if we lived they in this world, share. this is how it would be. And in Star Wars, it's kind of the same. Like everything feels like old and it has like a lot of history and things have been um like repurposed to fit you know to function in people's lives and everything like that like it has to do and then you get to dune and again like you just said it's like this big old stone room and it's just like why did we do this and the other thing too is like they're in this they're in this ancient ancient city and they're not 
we don't see the city at all really yeah we don't see it. yeah like, we don't see it like we don't see the underground parts of it like we don't see we see a little bit of the people mm. like i think i totally would have loved to see a little bit more of the people yeah um but like just kind of like ground us a little bit in terms of where we're at and not just in this palace that they're holed up in yeah I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe tied to it is oftentimes sci-fi gets a little caught up in the big people and never so much in the little people and fantasy tends to lean, like, that's like the basis of the farm boy to, you know, chosen one trope is Mm -hmm. like, well, you still start with the farm boy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that maybe, you know, as opposed to... It's hard to start with Princess Leia. Right. It's hard to start with her. Which is interesting because Game of Thrones does it. Yeah that Game of Thrones is really all about the nobles until later on. Um, but but, I don't but know it's even they... the lower of it the is. nobles. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's still, it's still the, the, underdog. the farm boy of yeah. the nobles. Like, yeah. That's what Dune is to an extent, too. But it. But they don't do a great job of establishing Establishing. That. Right. You don't see their dynamic with the other houses, no. which would probably yeah. help. You know, if you actually saw the emperor. Because you get to see well, the king. Gets... Right. It's establishing them as an underdog, which I think maybe Dune doesn't do as clear a job. I mean, I think by the end of the story, they're clearly underdogs, but maybe clearly. at the start, they don't show it enough. They tell us, but they don't, like, we don't really see them, like, how they're treated by other houses, as opposed to, like, showing the Starks who are, like, you know, the strongest people in the North, but still, like, thought of as, like, these backwater, like, savages, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting bit of context, idea. for sure. Maybe that's context, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I, I think it is, a lot of it is tied into sort of the, the tone of it all. Yeah, the like losing sort of the the heart and the humanity, which limits the audience. Because I think that's a big reason why the MCU has succeeded so much is they made people care about the characters, even when the individual movies aren't necessarily that good. People are like, "Oh, I fucking love Iron Man, so I'm coming back for Avengers Four. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's that sort of thing. And then if you don't care about the characters, you know, you're not going to connect with as many people, mm-hmm. which is maybe a problem in Dune. Isn't yeah. Iron Man dead, Carl? Spoiler I don't, alert. I don't think he's going to be the year in of Avengers our Lord, 4. <laughs> 2021. He was. That's where he died. Oh, right. Get, Get your, your numbers straight. straight. <laughs> I knew what I was saying. Yeah. I was on it. Mm-hmm. You doubted me. Whatever. <laughs> so let's wrap everything up just by talking about kind of overarching thoughts about the movie and then also kind of, you know, expectations and theories and curiosities for part two which is coming in a couple years how long a just two years. years yeah it's they're filming this summer and then it's coming like two years after i know i didn't think they were going to make it work in two years time i thought it would be three for sure but they apparently are that's we're, still a long time to wait yeah <laughs> we'll see how we feel yeah i mean i'm just like really curious to see like how the structure of this impacts the structure of the next movie like like we were talking about earlier like is it going to be a six hour thing that you just have to watch mm-hmm. or will it you know completely change the way the first one hits like what will it look like and that kind of thing we took a break uh <laughs> a little earlier um that will not be in this podcast but that during which we kind of talked about you know and i talked about that uh i think if they nail paul's and chani's romance which I, I don't think is a spoiler it's clearly set up in this movie mm-hmm. that that would add a lot of you know uh, emotion and heart to the story and potentially really elevate the material mm-hmm. in a way that i think 
yeah, would would improve part one a lot. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see. I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a second part that really makes the whole story that much stronger. Yeah, and going or, off of that really quick, just also we were mentioned earlier how I was really excited to see how they elevate Chani's character from the her in the book to being just more rounded and dynamic and complex. Um, Absolutely. Because I don't think she, I mean, it fall, it's a, one of the pitfalls of, you know, an older book is that unfortunately, like a lot some of, the of these women... female characters are super underdeveloped and she's one of yeah. them. So I would be really excited to see how they make her into a real full character. And conceptually, there's a lot there to play with. I mm-hmm. think that she's like a Fremen, she's a warrior, you know, she is ultimately like Paul's love interest and without getting into spoilers how that impacts where the story goes and where the plot goes I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities for how to develop their relationship and Chani too individually I think Danini has talked about the second part being more of a classic movie more of a classic like cinematic experience which is crazy thinking about how visual this movie is because when I hear Mm -hmm. cinematic I think visuals but i think what he means by that is it's gonna be more action-packed and i i think if chani gets to be at the heart of a lot of that i think would be really interesting to see you know her get to be this kind of warrior alongside paul and likewise you know i i have said that i have a soft spot for paul atreides and i am excited to see how they portray his uh increasing dependence and relationship on his prescience his like you know, future telling powers, which are clearly not fully reliable because I think that's really at the heart of the story and what the story is about. If they can pull that off, I think maybe he might come across as a more compelling protagonist, especially now that he will be driving the story rather than just along for the ride. But I don't know. I mean, there are definitely, I think, some notable criticisms to be had for this first part that hopefully they can answer. Yeah, I feel like we've been dismantling this for however long we've been talking, but... I think, you know, there was things I really liked about it, and then there were, like, we had all had critiques. But overall, I think that the watching experience was really fun. We were talking about, like, being cinematic. It was, like, it was so fun to just sit and watch, and I kind of like to not think about structure while I am watching a movie and not think about all of the components. And so if you're able to, like, lose yourself in watching something, then it's a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the ultimate importance and the longevity of this movie's impact will depend a lot on how they nail the sort of emotional climax and where the story goes. Because I think that's a big reason why Lord of the Rings, we were talking about in comparison mm-hmm. a lot earlier, that it has such an impact to this day. Because there's a lot of things about that movie that, ha- like those movies that haven't aged well, mm-hmm. you know, from their like lack of female characters to like their very white cast to like there are parts of them that are just frankly kind of cheesy with like bad CGI and mm-hmm. like shit like that. But like the emotional heart of the story like still impacts us. And like, you know, when you have Sam be like, uh, you know, I may not be able to carry that, but I can carry you. And like <laughs> the scene, it's so moving. And if you, and if the Don't second part cry. of Dune, I know can like bring that level of emotion in some of the dynamics and the climax and really like, you know, leave us with a big, mount doom sort of level of emotional satisfaction i think it'll really help uh the longevity of the project and we'll just have to see if denis and his team can pull through i feel like that is probably one of the major differences between this movie and lord of the rings 
um, is the fact of how isolated Paul and his mother are and how restrained they both are because like we were talking about how they're probably the most compelling relationship in this film and at the same time they're on their own and the relationships that they have with the people around them like those relationships are completely gone now and we are going to go into the second part being like rebuilding stuff with new characters that we don't know and mm-hmm. so it's going to be really interesting to see if they can like you said you know hit that emotional mark with people we may not may struggle to care about i i think some of it too the impact may be in terms of without getting into spoilers there will be some reunions in the second part and with maybe some characters who could use more development and if they're properly developed will that then make the reunions impactful or will you know because of maybe the feeling like a lack of depth in part one will it not fail to connect with audiences uh and i i honestly i don't know how it'll play out you know if you just judge fellowship of the ring as an individual piece probably have a very different dialogue than if you uh, you know now as we Mm -hmm. do address the whole trilogy and i'm curious to see how dune ultimately turns out in that same way you know i definitely don't think it's as warm a story overall overall but if it can still capture people's hearts yeah because I think the number one thing that people have praised universally has been the visuals. And, like, that's not enough to make a story last. Right. And so, you know, are they going to ultimately care about the overall story is, you know, the big question mark. And, I mean, I know I do, but I don't know if that will, like, reach people universally, if they'll be able to, or not universally, but broader audience. I do like how much of a discussion, whether or not people like the movie this has been do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean like I do I think it's not something we get very often when we have something that's this big and this much of a debate or anything and like I can talk about different things with people that like you know aren't even in like the like filmmaking space just having something that's kind of a phenomenon it has been really entertaining I think to you know have these conversations about yeah like what makes this movie good or what makes it bad or you know which has been really fun. So, hopefully that'll yeah. continue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully the hype will build and people yeah. will turn out for part two, so we can continue to have these conversations. Yeah. All right. Well, any last thoughts? <laughs> My last thought is I need Jessica to be a girl boss on part two. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> with that very important final thought. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah thanks for coming this was really on. Fun. Uh, it took a little while to get it scheduled, but I'm glad you guys, I'm sure we'll have you guys on again. I know, Caroline, you and I want to talk about Lord of the Rings yes, at some point. Yes, let's discuss. I know, I feel like we I both... got like so much of my adaptation stuff out in yeah. this session, but I think that... There's I'll... always more to There's talk about. There's always more to yeah. talk about, especially for me and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, all right. So please leave a review if you like this, and if you didn't like it, don't leave a review and just go away. <laughs> Donate to the Patreon. It'll be linked below. Follow all the socials. You can email me at popcraftpodcast at gmail.com with any insights you have. Until next time, I'm Carl Albert, and this has been Popcraft.